often feel like I'm flying when I listen to this song. Flying around the world to its to all all corners and edges. Man, we'll be talking a little bit about the Earth tonight, but uh, the inner Earth. At some point, that'll pop up. We have a great guest. Hello, everybody. It's Frank. We have a great guest tonight. First time on the show for Brooks Agnew. Brooksagnew.blog. And um, I cannot wait to start off with Mr. Agnew because there's so much we can talk about that it's, it's just one of those introductory episodes. Master engineer. He's worked in several fields of engineering for what I've gathered nearly 50 years. And uh, acceptable, exceptional knowledge of uh, weapon systems and current events. And the thing that really got me is, and it, people started pointing me in his direction, says, if you want to talk about something really cool, talk about uh, inner earth, not flat earth or spherical earth or any other kind of earth, trapezoidal earth. Talk about inner earth, hollow earth theory with Brooks Agnew. So that's how I originally went out and, and started digging through his stuff. Got him on the air, and here he is tonight. So we'll be talking to him. But we have to get some stuff done first in the meantime. Yesterday was a wonderful day, really wonderful day. And it, just from start to finish, we just did little, simple, fun things with Aurora. Got her running around all over the place, and family came by, and just people trickling in all day and ended with a little pizza party and because she loves pizza pizza and broccoli that's all she asked for pizza and broccoli but uh we had a great time and i gotta tell you it was just it was joy it was a good feeling of joy and i just wanted to i took it i took it real slow yesterday and enjoyed it all i'm sure that a lot of people in our lives did too because you got to take account of those days. There's too many other things going on in between to make you, uh, to pull you off track. But here I am on Thursday. The system that I am working on right now at the studio, the computer and everything else around me is working at a minimum. After the show, Jim Lee is going to get deeper into this, into the, uh, the, the machine here tidy some things up, strengthen some other things, and then I have to redo all of the monitor configurations in here. I, I've got the three in front of me working, thank God, but the other two that are pretty vital to overall room functionality, they're not with me yet. So I just need something to get these broadcasts done because, oh, but I can't wait until things are back to normal. I feel like I'm just, I don't know, like driving on a spare tire, you know? You only got a couple of miles. Well, I got a couple of miles, so watch out. All right, I, I have a. I want to th say thank you to my sponsors, BlueMonsterPrep.com. Blue Monster Prep. Use promo code Frankly. Uh, this is from Pat and Gina at Blue Monster. Hey Frank, we've created a brand new getting started page, prominently featured on the home page of Blue Monster Prep. It's in those rotating banners right in the front. Getting started to make it easier for your audience to get started. So. Um, 
bluemonsterprep.com. It, it included is a checklist with hyperlinks to important product categories to make sure your audience has all the basics covered. Scrolling further down the page, your audience can also view all of our most popular recommended items to help take the guesswork out of getting started. And of course, the Quite Frankly family audience is always welcome to call us at, here's the number, one 800 876-7616. Oh, jeez, I screwed it up myself. 1-800-876-7816. With any questions, um, contact information is there on the website. BlueMonsterPrep.com. It is the, you know, we're going to get some pretty, we're going into hurricane season if you're on the East Coast. There's just fall, there's winter, there's blizzards, there's everything else, the squalls. You don't want to be uh, caught in a squall, do you? So go and make sure you got everything that you need for your family and your security at home all checked off. And then start doing some holiday shopping. As with all the other amazing affiliates that we have on that page, I got to tell you, I have an update. We have a, quite frankly, coffee that is close. We're doing mar- we're, we're doing labels and marketing and brand you know branding at this point but we we've settled on a first generation coffee roast that'll be great we're going to tinker with the with the blend as time goes on because there's so many awesome things we tasted along the way but the quite frankly coffee is almost done i even got in touch with lefty's cigars and i said hey blaze I said, what would you think, think about helping me uh, design and craft a, a nice uh, a nice cigar just for, quite frankly, audience members, we can call it the Jester. He said, I would love to do that. Get in touch with me at the end of October. So we're going to be doing that. And um, I'm thinking I want something a little bit more along the lines of the vanilla cognac. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't like the Maduros too much. I wouldn't go for a Maduro. I would go for something a little bit lighter, a little bit more mild, like a Connecticut wrap. Um something mild if there's going to be any kind of flavor there's going to be like a vanilla something like that so something around there but we'll see what the so you're gonna be able to get the jester for christmas stocking stuffers coffee uh botanical chocolates cbd pre-rolls there's so many amazing things on quite frankly.tv in the affiliate section go get your holiday shopping done for the frankly in your life oh and don't forget all the merch all the the um the shirts. All right. Well, that's that. I have to get. I tell you one more thing. Now nah, I'll tell you this around the, the time we go to break. I will tell you that then. Tomorrow's going to be another good show with another great guest. Raw Egg Nationalist is on the show, author of the new release, The Eggs Benedict Option. We learned about this title from Noor Bin Laden. And now we got Ren coming on tomorrow night to talk about The Eggs Benedict Option. I'm sure that Jay Gulanello is going to love it already. Raw eggs. Go for them. All right. Are you ready? Are you ready to go for a little bit of a trip with me? Because it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. Into the grab bag we go. Well, there's only like one grab bag we need to grab tonight. Well, two. Because I want to start off again with a little bit of this freak from South Carolina. This whiny voice bitch that I don't know why... I mean, New York is just a, is just broken. Um, but when you have places like Utah and South Carolina that send people like Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romney to represent their states in the Senate, 
don't understand. If you're in South Carolina or Utah, you could send Patrick Henry to the Senate right now. But they send these little quizzling bitches to the Senate. Lindsey Graham's abortion bill creates turmoil for a GOP midterm strategy. Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't care about that. Obviously, the timing is absolutely amazing. But it's more so this. Lindsey Graham, if you didn't know about this, he went out and he wanted to propose, I guess, a Senate bill that aims to make all abortion after 15 weeks illegal in all 50 states. Now, putting the, putting the pie-in-the-sky morality end of it, that everybody would like to see this go away altogether, abortion, the, uh, the abomination of abortion go away altogether, especially how it's been exposed, what the nature behind it is, what the, in, the industrial incentives behind the harvesting and, and, and the meat grinding is, that all aside, what did Lindsey Graham just do, or was he attempting to do? What does the public messaging to all the nincompoops out there who already don't know their ass from their elbows when it comes to American civics take from this little stunt two months before uh, a pretty important election? Well, after 50 or so years, you have the Supreme Court that finally course-corrected and said the federal government has absolutely no authority on issues like abortion. And then immediately, Lindsey Graham goes out there and, I guess, hints or asserts that the federal government does have a legislative role in abortion, where they can actually legislate something like this and limit all the states who are pro-abortion to never going beyond 15 weeks, which would then mean that if there is this kind of legislative power delegated to the, uh, the Congress, which it is not, to restrict abortion, then the converse would be true. The opposite would be true, where in a, uh, a, a Democrat-dominated or a pro-abortion-dominated Congress, they can pass legislation to make sure everybody needs to provide abortion until the day of the child's birth. So Lindsey Graham is doing a lot more than, you know, lighting a fire and giving a little bit more of a campaign issue to Democrats to go stump on when they're already in such bad, bad position, despite what all the fake polls and what all the fake headlines about sudden shifts in momentum are all about. Lindsey Graham is a piece of shit. A piece of shit. And if you ever see him in public, tell him I said so. Hey, Lindsey, you're a piece of shit. That's all you got to say. Don't throw anything at him. Nothing. Just let him know. He's a piece of shit. So after 50 years of hoping that the lines, the, 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 the lines in the sand would be redrawn so that at least each individual state would have their own moral compass in their hands, Lindsey Graham goes out there, and some stupid people out there might think that this is a good idea. That it's, oh, well, that's actually a really moral thing. Good for, good for him. No, it's not. No, it's not. It doesn't do anything. We want separation of states. We want to distance ourselves from each other. That's what we want. There is no authority for this. So what this creates as far as a talking point in an election, it's really secondary to what he's trying to assert. This is how Lindsey, people like Lindsey Graham, who is a progressive, they're all progressives. They either pretend to be anti or pro on any number of issues because regardless of what they want to pass, 
in the affirmative or in the opposite direction. It all affirms that government has a place on the issue. And 99% of the times, it does not. Unless we're talking about something that's going on at the post office, the federal government should be a neutered little nothing. So that, that's what Lindsey Graham, that, that's the kind of uh, gifts that he brings to the table, that piece of shit. Okay, now what do we have? Here is the immigration, the illegal alien issue again. And I got a little bit of a different take for you today because a little bit has changed as to what's happened with Martha's Vineyard. Now, this is New York. This is more of the same for me. Now he knows how it feels from the Daily Mail. NYC Mayor Eric Adams claims the Big Apple is near a breaking point after Texas bust 11,000 migrants to Sanctuary City while El Paso has thousands of immigrants sleeping on the streets. Now, this is more... This is more of what I was saying before than what Chris Ann Hall was saying. In this respect, it's ridiculous. I mean, New York City is going to collapse under the weight of far bigger issues. I'm trying to get a couple of friends to come on and tell us what they are. They're not even immigration-based. This is something else. But when you have 11,000 migrants or thousands of migrants sleeping on the streets of El Paso and you are Texas... And if you are not organizing your Texas State Guard to take these people and deliver them on the other side of the border, what are you doing? What are you doing? Sending 11,000 more inland is not, I mean, it's, some of you think that this, uh, th- this game is, is sustainable and good. Now, if you're in the, if you're in the business of Cloward Piven and you want to see the entire country collapse as quickly as possible, I understand your aim. And at least it checks out logically, given your motivations. But this means this is just ridiculous. It's, yeah, it's fun to hear Eric Adams say, stop, we're near a breaking point. It's fun, but it doesn't help anybody. Now, on the flip side of that, we have Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, little island off the coast of Massachusetts where Democrats like to uh, hide out, like it's their little desert fortress in Mask of the Red Death. They, um, we have a different situation there. Okay, we have, we have a different situation there. And that situation has to do with the fact that these are migrants, illegal aliens that are, and it was kind of a screw it day for me with this. These are people who are being flown in from Florida. Okay, now I gotta say, I am 100% again where I was a couple of weeks ago when it comes to border states needing to do the work to expel foreign nationals back over the border and to not be uh, ashamed to ask for help either. Feds be damned to hell. But I am 100%, 100% for non-border states like Florida who have already seen people resettled into their states from the border pushing them to places like Martha's Vineyard. I was most happy to see it. Most happy to see that. I had a hearty chuckle. I had especially a big chuckle when I saw, I heard locals that were on tape in Martha's Vineyard announce that they had no place to put 50 people. 50 illegal aliens that showed up in Martha's Vineyard and locals were like, we don't know where to put them. I, we can, they have to go somewhere else. I live in a village, I will keep saying it, I, I live in a village that has been decimated over the last 25 years. My village is two square miles. The official population, I I have to go get it because you're going to laugh at this. 
The official population, listen to this, in 2017 in my village was 29,623 people. I promise you, there is at least 65,000 people in this village. At least. The best thing is that if I go to the 2020 population, I guess based on the census, the 2020 population in this town went down about 400 people to 29,210. So we supposedly have 400 less people in this town. We have, we have 400 less American citizen, American citizen taxpayers in this town. Oh, they all pay taxes. Yeah, I know. They pay five cents sales tax on their Wonder Bread. I understand. Great. But 400 less taxpayers here. That's about it. So I laugh when I hear these wine-swilling ninnies in Martha's Vineyard say, we can't handle 50 people. We have tens of thousands Tens of thousands. Now, let's go to documentary filmmaker Ken Burns promoting some Holocaust film that he's a part of, I guess. So guess what startling connections are going to be made as he as he talks to guest hosts on, on CNN. Listen to this. This is history. All of your documentaries are about history. Yeah. But all of them also make you think about where we are now and we woke up to the news this morning that governor ron desantis of florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh to martha's vineyard off the coast of massachusetts including kids and whatnot and i'm not saying this is not a one for one this is not a parallel here in any way no it's not a parallel to the holocaust in any way but let's go there anyhow but it does address some of the same themes some of the same themes of the holocaust it has trappings of holocaust you know, it has all the trappings of a Holocaust, but not exactly there. We haven't gone full-on crematorium yet. Better part of this documentary. Well, Kevin, it's I wonder if the you abstraction of human life. It's basically saying that you can use a human life that is as valuable as yours or mine or Lynn's and to put it in a position of becoming a political pawn in somebody's authoritarian game. This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. This is See, this is Ken Burns. Now, I have, I loved... I love the, ba- the still to this day, and it'll always be good. The baseball, Ken Burns baseball, amazing. Uh, some aspects of Ken Burns Civil War, amazing. I love the, I love the, the, the imagery. I love Shelby Foot. Uh, but, but, but this is the problem here with culture and with history. These are the people telling stories. These are the people who are telling our stories. You know how twisted what he just said is right there. Now, ignore an incredible take. Ignore the reducing of people to political pawns at the point of the border, which is completely in the hands of the people he votes for and everybody at that fucking network votes for. The crimes against humanity that are necessary to even get those women, children, and men to the border, the child rape, the murder, the drug trafficking, the negligent homicide, all of that to get people to that border. When it's very simple to de-incentivize all of those caravans, very simple to de-incentivize it. We've been ringing the dinner bell for years because they are being used as a pawn to overload a system and to create a permanent dependent underclass of hopefully one day legalized voters. That's what they're trying to do. This is, and that is to effectively wipe out the sovereignty and the national civic culture of the United States once and for all and meld it into the big global bullshit that they're making here. This is Ken Burns. 
These are the people they look to to tell the stories of our times. And, and, and he skipped over that entire part, how they even got here. No, instead, he focuses on the first-class flights they were getting to secret Democrat hideaways on Martha's Vineyards. Martha's Vineyard. The food scraps, if they are given food scraps, which you know that they won't be, the food scraps that they would eat in Martha's Vineyard over the next few days alone is going to be better than anything they ever smelled in Guatemala. The, the, the nerve that they have to make these statements. They've been flying thousands of people into Westchester Airport at 3 o'clock in the morning under cover of darkness for the last year and a half. But what a cruel stunt this is to fly these people to Obama's Fortress of Solitude. What a cruel stunt. These are the worst type of bougie hypocrites you can imagine. Okay? These are the people who put the no person is illegal, science is real, love is love nonsense signs in front of their houses in places like Back Roads Greenwich. They stick the signs right there in the roadside flower beds outside, on the outside of their fences and seven foot tall stone walls. That's where they put it because no one's going to bother them out there. That's just so they, they can virtue signal to their other idiots, rich nonsense idiots. These pinko progressives, they are in the business of dehumanizing people. You want to talk about reducing people into pawns. They are in the business of dehumanizing people, period. The open border, as far as it comes to open border, middle-class pinko do-gooders, they are responsible for it all. They're essentially responsible for the, and they are essentially, I would say, responsible for the resentment that people feel when once quiet towns start turning into favelas. That's it. Here's your case in point. Case in point. This is from the Post Millennial reporting on some more craziness coming out of San Francisco, which can only come from one source because who has who has a say in any matter out there in San Francisco? San Francisco Bicycle Coalition says not to call police about stolen bikes because it hurts black and brown people. San Francisco crime has skyrocketed since 2020 and bike theft has grown into an epidemic in the Golden City. In response, the San Francisco Bike Coalition wrote on their considerations sections of their website that victims of bike theft should reconsider calling the police as black and brown people could be harmed from the interaction, which means black and brown people are responsible for most of the bike thefts out there, but they should not be held accountable because they're black and brown you th do they think that what do i and and now you think about this you think about where this takes your mind this is how the liberal says black and brown people are stealing most of the bikes in our city but and you go, well, but what? Where can you possibly go with this? That doesn't make you look bad. That doesn't, that doesn't, wouldn't make any sane black or brown American. I even hate using black and brown as, as a descriptor. That wouldn't make any sane black or brown American say, wait, wait a second. They just committed a crime. Why aren't you putting them in jail? Because you don't want to stigmatize me. Stigmatizing me is not prosecuting people who are committing crimes in broad daylight. Because you're because what? Because they're paternally racist as well. Where do you go next with that idea? We're embarrassed for them, uh, uh, or deny that they're doing it. 
that somebody else is stealing the bikes, but um, but you know it, it's just that the police are so racist they're going to go hunt down black and brown people, or, or better yet, say they don't know any better. Like, where do you go? How much more racist and coddling can a group of people get before something changes? And this is baked into everything. This is part of the war. This is part of the war. When people say, oh, man, the Civil War, I don't know, Civil War this, Civil War that, this is it. This is what the next Civil War is going to look like, more of. I mean, violence and murder rates are going up in the country as well. That's what it's going to look like. South African-style unrest, especially in big cities. Everything else is psychological warfare, warfare in the classrooms, warfare in, in, in science. You're going to see STEM. I'm, I'm going to play something for you that I want Brooks Agnew to, uh, to, uh, to comment on. But this only ever makes everything worse, including, once again, public resentment and suspicion. It's the same with illegal aliens and illegal immigration. It's the same with affirmative action, which is no longer necessary in this country. No one can stand on their own two feet in this country, especially if they're an ethnic minority, without a Democrat holding you up from, uh, from under both of your shoulders, it seems. Everything is racist to them. That's, if they didn't have it, they'd be nothing. It's just so incredible, the, the, the destruction they've been allowed to cause. Incredible. All right, we're going to be right back. I want to play this, uh, this clip before we call up Brooks, and I hope that you have enjoyed yourself thus far. Thank you for letting me vent a little bit. I will see you on the other side of the intro. Don't go anywhere. This is Max Ancaparato at 12,060 feet. You can get as high as I am by watching the Quite Frankly podcast. stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! It's just incredible. It's just incredible. And as I was talking to Adel about at, uh, at the, for the 4 o'clock show, taking it back, when he and I were talking about this, it's ju- uh, he, he, uh, he asked something along the lines of what changes that, you know, when somebody in Martha's Vineyard is, is confronted with this, are, you know, what inside of them changes. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. We're dealing with the most insane people on the planet. 
if you see, if you, if you keep track even poorly of all the stances they have taken in the past that has contradicted with so many other stances they've taken, for example, the, all of their hand-wringing about firearms, but yet they, they know the importance of sending, uh, sending uh, firearms off to Ukraine so that every last citizen is able to defend themselves. As I said today, note that nobody sent one AR-15 off to that war zone in Ukraine. Why wouldn't they send weapons of war? Why did they have why why did we only send weapons with just a little bit more kick than an AR-15 off to a war zone when these are weapons of war? Should have sent 100,000 AR-15s to defeat the Russians, but that didn't happen. They don't take note of any of that shit, nor do they take note of the fact that they 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 hem and haw about people with mental uh, mental illness and and emotional problems and how to you know red flag laws. Meanwhile, they want to force transgender people deeper into military and its leadership, and then uh, which is a demographic with a statistical forty percent plus suicide attempt rate. And not only you want to take people who are already going through enough hardship in life that that is a reality for them, you're going to train them with weapons and then put them into the high-stress situation of war zones. They're okay with that. They don't want you teaching your children how to target practice. There's so many things. If you expect anybody to see the light, the only thing that they will know is when they're Friday nights, they're quiet Friday nights at a cafe somewhere in Martha's Vineyard or in Greenwich, Connecticut or a Purchase Street in Rye, New York has been disrupted for one reason or another and they still won't change their stance. They will just demand that the local government do something to clean up the mess, get all the unwanteds out of their faces when they have their ca- their, their, uh, their uh, Prosecco and everything else on, on a Friday evening and they will continue voting the way that they vote. They do, they will not, they're absolutely gone. They're gone. And you want to see what how, how really deep a part of a war this is. Listen to this. Now, here is someone who's supposedly under the umbrella of the Democrats' supervision. This is a double minority. Well, not, not, not so much. I, I don't think women are a minority. I think they're a slight majority, right? I don't know. Anyway, she's a Hispanic woman that is in STEM. That is, you know, applied sciences, science, engineering, all of that. And I want you to listen to a little bit of the testimony, a little bit of the testimony that she shares uh, about what what, uh, what which uh, about an encounter of one of her school officials. Take a listen to this. Hold on. Hold on. Can I get that up? Here we go. I'm a math major, so I'm a STEM major. And in my school, they're starting to bring in social justice into STEM. And I already, I've talked to the school and with my department, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Why are you bringing in something in something that has to do with social justice that has nothing to do with STEM? And they, the excuse that they want, that they bring to me is because of minorities, poor minorities. I'm a minority, I'm Hispanic, and I am a woman. And I'm like, I'm not a victim, and I don't need you to feel sorry for me. We don't need social justice. And they keep telling, and they keep saying, "Oh, yes, we do, because we're a social justice school. That is what we do. And if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. You can leave." And, 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 they, I, I am. My concentration is in teaching. An advisor, listen, told me this. I told her, "I'm not a bad person. I actually care about the education system and getting, and you know, getting." 
ma making sure that minority students actually get into STEM. That's my mission and my purpose. And I'm like, I'm not a bad person. You know what she told me? She told me this. Oh, we don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. She told me not that. She told me this not once, two times, two times in different locations. You know something? We don't need social justice at all. We don't know if you're a good person yet. This is a then. This was a a UC Berkeley. Um, I don't know what what was going on. Um, some kind of a, a roundtable or a panel that was set up at UC Berkeley, and there you go. We don't know if you're a good person yet. So if you want to see what really is behind all this stuff at the border, and then all of the the warring and the opportunism that that pops up. Uh, along the way of all these people's confusion and displacement and and uh, the resentment that that builds up around how illegal aliens are just shipped all around and are being th th this is it you want to know what the race baiting is really all about in this country for people who have been here for generations and suddenly uh, we're supposed to believe it it's worse than it was in the 19th century with race relations it's about obedience it's all about obedience. You are worthless to them if you do not obey. They don't care about your identity. You can be a, uh, a Hispanic woman working uh, for, you know, for accreditation in, in, uh, in STEM, a STEM field. You can be Hispanic woman, a black woman, black man, uh, interracial, biracial, whatever the hell it is. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who, what you are, what you look like and what all boxes you check. If you're not obedient, you're not useful. This is a major part of the war. And and to get that into things like science, wow. Wowee, man. That's at UC, well, I mean, we've seen so much come out of UC Berkeley. We've seen so much come out of UC Berkeley over the last couple of years, I don't know, especially the last five to seven. 2015 to 2017, it was this sort of getting especially bad, but um, but yeah. Well, our guest tonight, who I hope is uh, is about to jump into the the Zoom at any moment here, we're gonna go take trips all over the place. But he is uh, he may have some thoughts on STEM, especially the political correctness that has found its way into the STEM field. He's been a professional and accomplished author in that field for a long time, but. After what we after that we we're going to be jumping down some rabbit holes together namely the hole that brings us to the interior of the earth itself Now I don't know how to get there I don't know how to get there I often wondered about this I wonder I can understand when um when people talk about the nature of the the planet the shape of it or whatever I, I can understand a lot everybody's claims to the mechanics in one way or another hollow earth is one thing I don't get I don't understand it because I've seen the diagrams of the earth inside of the earth I found one old one that I use as a default picture tonight where it's like there's a an inner earth with an inner sun. Like that's the whole the thing that gets me. Inner sun. Are these just people, or uh, is it a civilization on the inside that has that are like mole people? Are we the ones on the inside? I don't know. 
whenever I found things like that, it almost looks like the whole Russian doll where there's one smaller inside of the other. But I just don't understand what even the theory, the theory, um, how that's supposed to pan out. Anyway, it's a Thursday night, so I thought it would be a good way uh, to pass some time. But we deal, we still have to wait for Brooks to show up. So um, I guess we're going to go into something else. And that's something else, if you ask me, is going to be, because I have to ask him about Antarctica. I got to ask him about that or else w- what are we doing here? Now, the thing I, I was curious about revisiting is the whole story about Admiral Byrd. Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump, which I saw Sam Tripoli brought up on the Joe Rogan show weeks and weeks ago, and uh, I, I supposedly, I, I hope that I have Sam coming back on September 23rd. Um, sometimes it's, it's hard to keep him confirmed, so I'm holding out hope that he is. Now, if he does, then I got to bring this up. Because there's a lot of things with Antarctica that I want to know more about, including from all of our remote viewer friends. That's something I wish we had a little bit more time to do when we had uh, Andrew Bashago on, but we did not have time. We filled up the whole two hours in a a big way. Now, here is a little bit of what we had on the website. This is by... Writer John Carroll, Operation Hijab, Interstellar War at the Bottom of the World. There have been many conspiracy theories surrounding UFOs over the years, but none are more fantastic than Operation High Jump, during which a U.S. Navy task force was supposedly defeated in direct combat with UFOs in Antarctica in 1947. Operation High Jump was a U.S. naval expedition to Antarctica led by Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, a Medal of Honor recipient who had previously explored both the North and South Poles. It was the largest Antarctic expedition in in history, consisting of 13 ships, 23 aircraft, and 4,700 men. The official objectives of the mission were to map and investigate the physical geography of the region, develop techniques for erecting bases on the ice, and conduct general training in frigid conditions. The mission was unexpectedly aborted after only a few weeks when casualties were sustained in a plane crash. There's been speculation that Operation High Jump was actually a a search-and-destroy mission. Under the Third Reich, the German Navy began exploring and claiming Land in Antarctica during the 1930s. Thousands of Nazis escaped to Argentina at the end of the war, so it would have been reasonable to expect that their nearby submarine bases in Antarctica were potentially still operational. Keep it going. Here's where things get fun. And remember, this is a largely a theory. And I want to talk to, I want to start building more and more on this. In 1938, a UFO allegedly crashed in Bavaria. Germany. It was a disc-type craft similar to what was reported at Roswell, New Mexico. This UFO discovered, uh, uh, recovered by the Nazis is said to have been in the opposite condition of the one in Roswell and that the airframe was compromised but the engine slash anti-gravity drive was undamaged and the crew alive and well. The story goes that the crew were extraterrestrial humans called Aryans or Nordics who then helped German engineers construct a new fleet of craft and began working with them at their own base in Antarctica. In a most spectacular episode of this theory, Admiral Byrd actually met those extraterrestrials during Operation High Jump. This is also where claims are made that the true shape of the Earth was discovered. During the reconnaissance flight, Admiral Byrd was amazed 
As the snowy landscape gave way to an oasis, he suddenly found himself flying in warm climate above lush green fields and forests, home to mammoths and other strange creatures. Some versions of the theory say that he flew into an opening in the ground and that this beautiful land was the inside of the earth. In others, his plane simply continued at its present altitude, and that Operation High Jump was literally a high jump over the ice wall encircling a flat earth. What would that mean, that he, he would crash into the outer wall of the firmament? No. How does that work? Anyway, upon meeting the extraterrestrial delegation... Admiral Byrd was informed that the proliferation of atomic weapons must be halted because the Earth itself was now at risk of being destroyed in the next war. However, the power steering the U.S. government certainly had no interest in disarming, and Admiral Byrd had his orders. After the diplomatic effort failed, the theory says that an element of flying saucers launched an attack against Byrd's forces. They emerged from the water, flying at lightning speed and maneuvering in different directions on a dime. They shot down several fighter aircraft and sank three ships in an engagement that lasted about 20 minutes. The task force then retreated and limped its way back north. The battle in Antarctica started what would become the standoff between extraterrestrials and a cabal, which had solidified its power over Earth's governments in the aftermath of World War II. Soviet spies and captured Nazi scientists helped the USSR match the atomic capabilities of the U.S. in 1949, worsening the situation. But some people believe that the widely reported UFO sightings over Washington in 1952 was related to the geopolitical struggle with the extraterrestrials who, they argue, were conducting a show of force as a warning against the use of weapons of mass destruction. Now, that in itself... That is in itself, and that there's, there's true headlines all over the place from that in 1952. That is how we opened up the show. That's how we opened up the show with uh, Andrew Bashago. And we have to go back there, too, because, again, I want to ask him about Antarctica and the shape of the Earth, and that'll be another fun Saturday night show. I assure you of that. But without further ado, let's go over to Brooks Agnew, who is joining us. Joining us for the first time here at around 7.35 p.m. on the East Coast. Brooks, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you, sir? Oh, it's wonderful to have you on. I'm so happy that members of my audience turned me on to your work. I know that this is going to be a fun talk with you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I watch you all the time. Wow. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I, I knew I had a little bit of time because, uh, you know, you were, you were running just a tad bit late. So I, I filled it up by grabbing now first i want to ask you about a a pointed question about stem and politics in stem and i know that we can go so many different directions but since it's your first time on uh i also wanted to put a little bit more of a fun spin on what we're going to talk about with hollow earth by bringing up admiral bird and operation high jump those wonderful stories um we'll get to that in a second though let me ask you about this because i just played the video of this young woman she's a hispanic woman, uh, American, she's in STEM fields. I think this was at a UC Berkeley, um, I don't know, Q&A, some kind of a panel. And she was Mm -hmm. talking about how uh, she does not want social justice, that she does not believe that that, uh, any uh, ethnic, um, uh, American of ethnic, uh, you know, foreign ethnic uh, background needs to have their hands held or anything like that. And that coming from 
her superiors, her counselors, and any, anybody else in the upper echelons of the school she's in, she was told in so many ways that, uh, well, we'll figure it, we'll, we, will, we are a social justice school, this is a part of STEM now, and we will be the deciders of whether or not you are a good person. So I'd love to, as somebody who's been doing the work that you've been doing for, as you said, nearly 50 years, I want to hear what you think. Well, <clears throat> I always thought that, uh, you know, science and mathematics, engineering, I thought it was always uh, both asexual and uh, colorblind. Uh, the rules of the universe are universal. They're irrefutable. Uh, a lot of the theorems and postulates have been the same for a thousand years. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me when... Uh, political forces come in and say, oh, that engineering is racist or this technology is racist or this mathematics, uh, you know, discriminates against people of color. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's not just because I'm white. It's because I'm a mathematician. When I graduated college, I tested out in the top one-tenth of one percent of mathematicians in the country. And there were all kinds of people in there. In fact, most of my class was Asian. Oh. But, well, in New York, they're trying to figure out how to, uh, to, to, to outclass the Asians. They're the new white people in New York now. Uh, there's not <laughs> enough diversity when Asians do well in, in private high schools and things like that. It's, it's um, I don't know, if it weren't, it would be a little bit more funny if it wasn't so, um, I don't know, it didn't carry so much weight and it didn't put such a stark mirror up in the face of our culture right now as far as where all of our priorities are and our obsessions lie i should say but you've been a uh, you're a master engineer 45 years of experience working and consulting with fortune 500 the fortune 500 saving or creating more than 10,000 american jobs along mm -hmm. the way you've published more than 10 this is this thing this has got me you published more than 10,000 technical documents yeah, it's, it's probably closer to 18,000 now. Now, when it's a technical document, tell me what kind of, you know, what is one document? Well, these will be uh, work procedures. There'll be standard operating procedures. There'll be uh, uh, operating manuals for different kinds of test equipment or process equipment. I mean, this, these are very technical documents. They have pictures and drawings and, you know, preventative maintenance and spare parts lists and it's a lot of work. Uh, so, uh, uh, on average, how much, how many pages is one technical document? Mm, on average, I'd say five. Okay. Uh, maybe I've had some that are forty-five and some that are two, but I'd say on average they're five. You know, get a process flow diagram and then your your basic uh, description of what it is you're trying to accomplish. If it's a statistical analysis or if it's a uh, you know you're snapping two things together or welding two things together, and then all the parameters that go with it. It's sort of like when you buy your computer, you get an operating manual. Somebody sits down and writes that manual. That's a technical document. Document. Yeah. Do you read it? Uh, no, not really. Because most manuals are written like crap, but I, I write really good stuff, and that's how we saved a lot of jobs. And I write in four languages. Wow. Wow. So so what, what languages are you fluent in? Uh, well, in writing, I can write in Spanish, I can write in German and English, I can write in phonetic Japanese, and I can write in Armenian. Wow. 
Damn, Brooks. I, I, I see these are things I have not picked up with you yet, and it, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. I, I'm looking at this from a high schooler, uh, high school standpoint. When you know somebody assigns a an essay at the end of class, everything is about page count, word count. When you say five on average, but sometimes up to 45 for one of these documents, the first mm-hmm. thing I think is, okay, 18,000 times five. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's a lot. Plus, I have 12 books in print, too, so that that's a lot of published uh, work. So, with 12 books in print, I say chemical, mechanical, electrical, and quality engineering master, seven-time Amazon best-selling author, and, uh, and you are a radio show host of America Free Radio. So, uh, in, in your show, tell us a little bit about what you are talking about every night, because I know that current events and weapon systems and, and the state of the world is a big part of what you do as well. I, I try to approach things uh, from a scientific point of view, so we go into like economic science. A lot of people want to understand why the economy is the way that it is and what can be done to fix it. We go into political science, but not politics. We, we usually look at it from a historical government point of view, like this is what, you know, constitutional monarchy does, this is what fascism is, and, you know, we go into the science of that, and then, you know, it informs people, it lets people know how to look through the rhetoric and how to not uh, fall for, you know, some of the marketing that's being done by one party or the other. That sounds like something, especially that I know that you um, you go down the, the uh, hollow earth rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, it makes me it makes me feel really like th- this is the type of a show I like where I know I'm getting a little bit of history, a little bit of current events, but you're not afraid to go into other places. Now, I'll, we're going to talk Hollow Earth tonight, but do you get into anything else that is considered, um, I don't know, uh, outer limits or supernatural, uh, paranormal even? Uh, well, maybe a couple things. Uh I remember in 97, I was approached by uh, the congresswoman from Alaska, Jean Manning, about a weapon system that was being that had been built on the north slope of Alaska called HARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. So I got a hold of Bernard Eastland, who's the guy that filed the seven patents, and we spent about two weeks going over stuff and i realized because for my own research and this is the reason that they contacted me because i had done i had developed a system for oil and gas exploration in the early 80s and they contacted me about it and i asked them what is the frequency base that you're using to make these ionospheric heaters and they told me and i said no 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 you cannot use those frequencies because they're dangerous and once I started getting into the design and the function of HARP and the power of it, I realized what they were doing with it. Well, I did actually three documentaries on that weapon system. So based on what you, all the personal work that you did, obviously three documentaries uh, worth, I have not seen uh, any of them, but I, now I, I intend to start uh, chipping away at that. What are, what are some of the, um, the banner points that you would leave with people that have only heard legends of old harp on the weather manipulation, uh, you know, uh, strange roaring sounds from the, the woods. I mean, we hear all of the, the Sasquatchy kind of legends <laughs> about harp, but w- what are some of the real world red flag things that you would say about what you discovered? Uh, well, the the main things, the reason HARP was developed was to make use of the large amount of natural gas that they discovered on the north slope of Alaska. It wasn't piped anywhere, so they used it to make electricity locally for that for that ionospheric heater, and they jacked it up to about 1.2 billion watts. 
Now, what does it do? It heats up the ionosphere and pushes it out into space to do two things. Number one is to shape it so they can bounce radio waves off it and aim them where they want to aim them so they can communicate with submarines, you know, privately. And the other is what's called Earth tomography. This is an ability to kind of uh, radio scan the Earth. And once HARP became operational, and then there were others built like off the coast of Southern California, and I think there are 27 operational HARPs now in the world. This is how all of the large oil and gas deposits were found. The ones in North Dakota, the ones in Crimea, they were all found with HARP because it can look very deep and it can look at contrasting uh, substrata using these radio waves. The issue is that the wavelengths can actually resonate with stress in the ground and trigger an earthquake. Hmm. And I discovered that by accident in Roseburg, uh, Oregon, when I was drilling or actually scanning for a gas well for a farmer. He had, I don't remember, 800 acres or something like that, and he wanted a natural gas well on his property to obviously run his operation. So we were scanning for that well, and we turned our transmitter on, and five seconds later, uh, like a 5.5 quake cracked right underneath us. And I wrote it in the lab notebook. I didn't pay that much attention to it because it never happened before or since but then i published that this was in 83 i think and i published in 87 and that's when uh they contacted me was in i think 97 because they had read that paper online and said hey wait a minute so and we were doing it with 50 watts you add a billion watts to that you have a serious earthquake machine yeah so that got me started in the research and then then we discovered the weather warfare aspects and i actually built a cloud chamber and we i did it three times i did it once on joe rogan's program i did it once for history channel and i did it once for jesse ventura live on tv wow i mean that's that's some prestigious uh airtime that's for sure um the uh damn i was just gonna ask you something now it left my mind uh, I definitely have a hollow earth question that just popped up for me based on what you just said. And, um, oh, 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 okay. Well, as far as harp earthquake machine, um, it makes me think about Tesla and seismic technology we heard about. You ever, you ever dip into any of Tesla's work? Uh, and as much as the resonance is concerned now, of course, everybody's used Tesla coils and, you know, generated high voltage. And we have some, uh, let's just call it health technology that uses some of the technology at, at low, ampli uh, low amplitude. But uh, the resonance is most curious to me because you could put very little energy into a system once you find the resonant frequency. As long as you apply it at exactly the right moment over and over again, you can create tremendous uh, results and with very little power input, it just takes time for it to build up that cycle. Okay, yeah, that's that's that we've uh, we've heard things like that where it's very very small, but it builds and it builds and builds, and then of course everything is compromised. Now, um, let's get into the meat and potatoes of tonight's show, and that is when did you first become interested in hollow earth investigating? the the inside of the earth or the idea of whether or not there is an inner earth 
uh, to the point where you actually dedicated some time instead of just casual reading on the internet on 4chan and you know you know what, what where did that come up for you and, and where did it all start that, that's a much more profound question than you know my my co-author and i uh, wrote four books called the ark of billions of years series and it was on the creation and destiny of the earth we researched 44 ancient cultures and each of these cultures had a viewpoint a a center of their culture and their religion that centered around the earth itself and the relationship between man, the human, and earth, the living planet. They believed that there was a life force that we had a symbiotic relationship with. They deified the earth and there was a lot of uh, energy that went with earth and somebody i think we were on volume two or something we were about a thousand pages into this series and somebody handed me a book called our hollow earth and i read it i found it fantastic and entertaining and i put it on the shelf and didn't give it another thought because it just wasn't any science to back it up and then it was a short time later <clears throat> there was a picture taken of Earth from space. And they published the picture, and it really excited my friends down at JPL because the picture showed auroras over both poles of the Earth at the same time. And that kind of blew everybody's mind because everybody thought that the auroras were caused by the solar wind they were caused by energetic particles that struck the earth from the sun and as you know only one side of the earth faces the sun at any given time and it's seasonal right you have auroras in the north you know during the winter and auroras in the south during our summer but this was auroras over both poles so they hurried and put together a program called the themis program which is five satellites they launched them into space different orbit altitudes and when the satellites lined up they turned the space program on and took measurements of just open space and in between satellites two and three a interdimensional explosion occurred they called it a cosmic bullet and of course it went in 360 degrees spherical all directions it passed satellites uh, three and four and five and went out into space past two and one and headed for earth but what what, expl what exploded they called it a cosmic bullet there was nothing there there was no mass there wasn't no asteroid there was no meteorite nothing it was just an energetic explosion like like an electric shock in the middle of space and it caused the aurora so they published a paper that the aurora is caused by cosmic bullets and they never ran another experiment. Well, it frustrated me because that's not the way science works. We work off reliability and repeatability and we create confidence intervals and there's a big structure to it. And they didn't do it and they spent a lot of money. So it got me curious and I started to open the rabbit hole. And that's when the other pieces of science started falling into place. Now, there were geologists, planetary core geologists that were, you know, solid on the idea that we live on a molten ball floating through space on tectonic plates floating around like cornflakes in a bowl of milk. And that's the way our planet's made and everybody agreed on. It's in your textbook. But then it doesn't fit all the evidence, all the data. For instance, in 2000 six 
Dr. Y Sessions at Washington University, very prestigious, took his grad students who were basically working for pizza and said, here's 600,000 seismograms. These are printouts from earthquakes. We want you to feed them into the computer from all over the world and let's see what we get. So by the time they crunched the data, it revealed an, an ocean the size of the Arctic Ocean underneath the crust underneath the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, under, was an ocean huge. under the ocean. An ocean under the ocean. And they could see the waves of an ocean, the waves crashing on a shore 800 miles below the Atlantic Ocean. That was pretty exciting. That's when I said, wait a minute, if there's water and there's space, there's probably life. And that got me involved in wanting to join the Hollow Earth Expedition, which was an expedition above the Arctic Circle to see if there's an opening in the crust. Well, the expedition leader died in 2007. So in 2000, early, two, well, late 2007, they made me the expedition leader. And so we set our sights on 2008. We were going to rent a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker. We were going to go looking for this opening in the crust. And unfortunately, the economy had something else in mind for 2008, yeah. and we didn't go. Okay. Well, that's a good place to stop because I have a great great interjection here. You just brought up in me a memory. Uh, a friend of mine out there, and he subscribes to Flat Earth Theory. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a video years ago, and I always remembered it because it was really striking, and it touched on exactly what you just said, that there was an expedition, though, but uh, whereas you're talking about scans that re revealed a, an ocean, there was one guy, and this made it to television somewhere. It was the testimony of a man who went down in, in a submarine to, I don't know what, what body of water, but it was maybe in the Caribbean or elsewhere, and he was going down to maximum depth, and he had seen something strange b below him where there was an opening in the earth, and it seemed like there was the shore of the, the shore of an ocean beneath the ocean where, where he can see waves lapping even though he's at the bottom of the ocean and there's nothing but water all around him. And the crazy thing was that when he tried to descend to this second ocean that he saw beyond whatever kind of a barrier was beneath him, he could not bring his submersible to that point because it was so buoyant he could not penetrate it. And, mm -hmm. you know, for, so for some of my flat earth friends, this is a, uh, a testament of as, as above, so below, and it's almost like an, a firmament beneath us as well as a firmament above. But um, it, it's just incredible. It's the, the only other time I've thought about it is you bringing it up right now, and you're saying that that kind of a subterranean ecosystem has been has been seen through scans well no not an ecosystem just the ocean just another and ocean and and so the the and of course i got a hold of the people at scripps which is the oceanographic uh, outfit in san diego and i said listen if you got two bodies of water and they're mixing together and they're isolated that is to say different water chemistry different salinity different sea life they're mixing shouldn't there be like evidence of that other sea life in this body and they said oh absolutely positively so it was funny because in 2008 we were hit with well the arctic was hit with a, a really strange warm condition 
different than a polar vortex that sometimes we see. And the stress of this wind put on the Arctic ice shelf broke it. It's, it's called calving. It broke. And when it opened, it opened the Northwest Passage for, I don't know, the first time in uh, who knows when, maybe a thousand years. And we didn't think it was all that crazy. Some people got brave and sailed it with a sailboat. But the interesting thing was later on that year, Scripps went to Malaysia to do their regular scan of rays, like stingrays and manta rays and that. It turns out this this kind of fish is like the the tree frog of the ocean. So like you have tree frogs in a rainforest, if there's some kind of toxin or pollution or weather change, the tree frogs show it first. Mm -hmm. they, they get like six legs and generate new species spontaneously. Rays do that in the ocean. Normally they see 10, 15 new species of rays. This, that particular year, 1,500 new species of rays, stuff that we have not seen in a million years in our ocean, alive. And it got me to thinking maybe the opening in the Northwest Passage allowed this stuff to swim through, catch the Gulf Stream, and be caught in Malaysia in these nets. Okay, so 2008, 2008, this, um, this gets scuttled. Um, mm -hmm. I know on your website there is some uh, interest, or, or I don't know if you've stopped trying to organize this, but I know that you, you have interest in trying to go out there and conduct some experience, experiments. Let me go to the website just for a second, because I'd love to get sure. this up on this. Okay, so I have here, let me get myself out of the way. Here is from brooksagnew.blog forward slash arctic hyphen mission. Now, you're talking about the rendezvous, the challenge, and the reward. Can you tell us what your uh, – just go through all three stages here. What is the, the entire scope of what you're setting out to achieve, what you're looking for, where you're going to go specifically, and, uh, and yeah. Well, uh, the only – ship that's capable of sailing these seas in this particular area is made by the Murmansk Shipping Company, which is in Murmansk, Russia. These are nuclear-powered icebreakers. They're notorious for their ability to break ice in the Arctic and Antarctic. They're, they're of course, got a three-and-a-half-year fuel supply, and they're plenty big. And uh, they they sail uh, to the North Pole on a regular basis every single year and to the South Pole as far as they can get to into the ice of the Antarctic. And they do rescue missions all the time. So we're going to charter one of these ships, which can carry 125 passengers. It has about 150 crew. And we had uh, plotted a map based upon historical data going back to the 1800s all the way to now to where we think this opening might be the only way to get there is with this ship we, we tried all kinds of other ways we tried plotting it by air we tried no one would fly below 11,000 feet which would have been useless because it's totally covered with clouds all the time you have to go there by sea so of course, the issue is that it's Russian, and you can't even buy Russian dressing right now. Not right now, no. Like the Russian icebreaker. So there have been various challenges 
we think that, well, we went to Discovery Channel and we went to Branson and other big, you know, ticket buyers of this kind of documentary. But we couldn't make a deal with them. They, they didn't either, they either didn't want to do it or they wanted to animate it or they wanted all the data and then they would release it at their whim. And I said, no, we, we've, we've got to go public with everything. Everybody's got to see everything we see. So we decided to do it as a crowdfunding. And and you know this, you, you're in the business, but if you try to do crowdfunding on a project this size, it's about three and a half million dollars. You're talking 60, maybe $75,000 just for the first GoFundMe campaign mm-hmm. or, or whatever uh, if you're gonna give, send, go, or it takes about 60 to $75,000 to run it. Because unless you have your own 5 million email addresses to go with which we don't uh so that's uh that's where we're at is uh that point and and we're serious about it it's the last piece of the puzzle we've been everywhere else we've been to the antarctic we've been to mexico we've been to canada we've been to china we've been to japan we've been to egypt we've explored every nook and cranny that we can all over the world except for above the arctic circle that's the last piece See, and, and so I guess aside from what you have seen over the years to make you want to go on this adventure and find out more, uh, as you've said before, you have, you're devoted to the scientific method, so speculation really isn't something that you, you do a lot of, but um, you, you must have heard legendary stories like that of Admiral Byrd in Antarctica, uh, where not only there was fabled Nazi UFO battles down there, but legends mm-hmm. of Byrd uh, finding what could be described as the entrance to the interior of the planet, or if not the interior of the planet, uh, something that revealed that the planet is it, it maybe 10 times larger, like there's lost continents, anything. And it made me think about this one, the um, this one thing, I, I guess the major sticking point about Hollow Earth, because all these theories make me feel really cozy, because it's just um, hell. I, I love mysteries. I love Indiana Jones pursuits and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, man, you know, imagine finding something that's just been lost for so long. I mean, hell. But I want to know what the the mechanics of an inner Earth even look like. Because you need a. Are they just mole people who live in the dark? Is there a, a, an, <laughs> an inner sun, as people say? How does that even work? You know, I don't. I don't get it. Well, let's, let's just talk about what we do know from instrumental analysis that we've already done, or, or that the team has already done. One is that we think the crust is about eight hundred and fifty, maybe nine hundred miles thick. So that crustal body contains all the magma and all the tectonic plates, everything that we see, and both oceans. So it's hugely massive, a a tremendous amount of mass and magnetic field in the crust. Then there's a gap, and we think that that gap is about a 1,000 miles. It's a long way to the core. And when you get to the core, this has been measured twice that's good because remember I talked about reliable and repeatable well we had measurements in Japan and then we had measurements at Carnegie Science and the Carnegie Science ones really fascinated me because when we started to take spectrographic measurements of the frequency coming off the core because obviously we can't drill to it we were getting two spikes now the one spike is very close to what iron should be but 
the interesting thing was the second spike. And the other interesting thing is that that shift was a little bit off in frequency. And when it comes to spectrographic readings or frequency readings of atomic bonds, it has to be exact, like to the fraction of a nanometer. And the difference was temperature. So what Carnegie Science did is they created what's called a diamond anvil. Uh, I'll show you just a small sample, okay, a diamond anvil. And they cleaved it in half and separated it and put them on hydraulic rams. And then in between the diamond, they put a crucible and filled it with pure iron filings. And then they smashed it with the hydraulic rams to create the pressure that they think this core sits at inside the earth. And then the key, they shot a laser through the diamond. And when they did, they were able to heat up that iron to the temperature of the sun, which is what was necessary to get the frequency to line up exactly. Hmm. Which means that that iron is it putting off a white light. It didn't explain the second hump, though. The second spike is what really threw people off for a while. And then it made sense. And this is why you need a cross-disciplinary scientific team like ours to pull all these pieces together. Because these people don't talk to one another. One PhD does not tread on another PhD's territory. It just doesn't happen. The second spike is xenon. And the reason it made sense is we're missing a lot of xenon in our atmosphere. It's not there. It's in the water. But it's and it's supposed to be an equal proportion in the air, but it's gone, and we don't know ever where it went. Now we know it's matrixed with the iron in the core, and that's the second hump. So now we know exactly, precisely what the core is made of. It is a solid iron crystal matrixed with xenon, and it sits at about six thousand degrees C. Wow. Okay. So so then we. Here's my here's my thing though, with something six thousand degrees C, where would where would you even fit anything inside of the Earth that could be that close to something that hot and not be? Uh, remember, it's a thousand miles away, and it has air between the core and the crust, so it's quite possible, quite possible. We're not talking about a thermonuclear explosion like the sun. We're just talking about a hot piece of metal. And heat dissipates with the square of the distance. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So there's a so then what would be the what would be the thing that holds the Earth together then? As far as you say, it's a thousand. If you have this 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 um, you have this core. We know it's light. It is. We know where light and heat could come from theoretically. We've and got it's very dense, like like fourteen, fifteen grams per cubic centimeter, and it's spinning very fast. Then you have the crust, which is separate from that, and it's by nature of conservation of momentum, running slower, twenty four hours to, to make a turn instead of maybe twelve hours or thirteen hours. That counter rotation between these two metal bodies is what creates the magnetosphere around our planet. Every piece, geological, electromagnetic, even what we call Lagrange points, these are the distance between the sun and the earth. These are points of what we call gravity wells, where 
you're equidistant between the two gravitational bodies. So there's kind of a dip in the gravitational pull one way or the other, right? It's like a tug of war between the sun and the moon, or between the sun and earth. It's 1,200 kilometers off. We've measured a gazillion times. It's 1,200 kilometers off. It means Earth is hollow. Wow. Wow. Thank you. It, and we, I know the Lagrange point because recently the World Economic Forum uh, suggested that they're going to send a massive uh, bubble blanket the size of Brazil out to the Lagrange point to block the sun from hitting the earth to cool the temperature of the planet. So that's that's oh, where right. I got that's where I got it. They're going to send a big bubble blanket out there. Um, <laughs> okay, so then let me ask you this. In your opinion, how does... I mean, I, I hear a lot of this right here. How does this stack up in, in credibility to say flat Earth? Have you been able to... Have you looked into that at all or in, in compared? Well, of course. I mean, I'm a scientist. I, I, I don't not believe in anything. But uh, I will tell you this. Like I said, there are postulates and axioms and rules of the universe that just don't break. And one of the rules of the universe, everywhere we've looked, as far and as small as we've looked, nothing is flat in the universe. Nothing. Not even time. Let me ask you this. The moon. You're talking about hollow Earth. Um, plenty of theories about the moon. And then I want to ask you about HARP again, a question that came up when you were talking about your time working on HARP and analyzing that technology years ago. The moon, a lot of th uh, theories about it being an unnatural planted satellite, theories of it ringing like a bell when uh, experiencing an impact of some sort. Have you jumped into any of that? And if you are, if you are of the mind that Earth itself is hollow, then... I guess it couldn't be a stretch that the moon in some way is uh, is on the same page. It makes sense that all stable planets probably form as hollow spheres. Because planets, and we do have observations of all three states. One is where uh, they collapse on themselves and uh, to conserve momentum they spin faster and faster and faster like, like, like the ice skater pulling her arms in, right? She just spins so fast. You know, but finally she explodes. Not really, but the planet explodes, and we have evidence of that. All you know, all over the place, different solar systems and chunks of planets that we see floating around in space. The second condition is where the planet becomes lopsided; it becomes heavy on one side, and it spits off a piece of itself, and that's what we see with uh, Venus and Mercury. The moon itself is lopsided not from its development, but from constantly being struck by dense meteorites. And the heavy side of the moon faces Earth. The moon revolves once every 28 days on its axis, and it goes around the Earth once every 28 days. So the same side of the moon faces us all the time. Now that, it wasn't a theory, it was actual event that occurred on the first Apollo mission. What they did is they trained the astronauts in geology. And what they loaded the uh, eagle with was geological acceler accelerometers, they're called, like, like microphones that you stick in the ground. And they planted these when they went to the moon. 
they planted them because they wanted to get radio signals from the moon about seismic activity on the moon. It's a logical experiment for the astronauts to do while they're there. So they get done with their mission. They get back in the Eagle and they take off. Well, the fuel tank that's sitting underneath them exhausts all of its fuel. And they're not going to pack it all the way back to Earth. So they jettison it. They just drop it back to the moon. It weighs maybe 800 pounds. Earth or a moon weight empty, about 800 pounds. But it drops, obviously, no atmosphere, so there's nothing to slow it down. It hits the planet going about 1,500 miles an hour. And when it does, this is the strange thing. The accelerometers picked up the impact. Boom. But the remarkable thing was that it kept ringing for two hours. It didn't just hit and thud. They were getting signals back from the, from the surface of the moon ringing, oscillating from that impact for two hours. And that's where the whole idea of a hollow moon came from. Now, of course, we've done all kinds of infrared, ultraviolet scanning of the moon and we know that there are a lot of hollow spaces in the moon. There's one in Schrodinger's Basin, which is on the south pole of the moon, that is big enough to put New York City inside of. And, and all the buildings. And all of this, all this you believe is all uh, a, a naturally occurring or forming um, uh, entity in itself? Or, or do you ever consider, uh, people say it's a spy satellite, Extraterrestrial, yeah. Well, I consider everything, and I believe nothing. <laughs> so if you ask me about do I believe the moon is hollow, no. But I'm very curious about it, and I'm most curious that we haven't been back since 1972, and it's about time, especially since there's a 10,000-year fuel supply sitting in one crater in Schrodinger's Basin. That interests me greatly. I'm sure it interests the Chinese as well. They photographed it. We're the ones that discovered it with the Elcross mission, but uh, it's there. Well, then let me ask you this last question about this, because, I, I mean, I'd love to have you back, Brooks, many times and just talk about all types of stuff. Um, Harp, you said before these this uh, system set up in Alaska, we've all heard about it. It's very, very popular talk on all types of um, subjects. It, it comes up more than you know. Actually, you probably know. But you said that it was used, you could be able to go deep into the earth and find deposits of one thing or another and, and sure. conduct really, really deep experiments. Uh, is it possible or has earth, inner earth cavities ever been discovered by something as powerful as HARP? <clears throat> no. And the reason is because of the way uh, the system works. It works on long wave radiation, what we call ELF or ULF waves. These are extremely low frequency waves, but they're very high amplitude, like a really, really loud kick drum. However, they and they do penetrate, but they don't reflect. So the antennas that we have that can pick up the signals coming back out of the earth, and believe me, I've done this more than most people in the field it taps out at about 20,000 feet hmm. about 20,000 feet in depth that's about it beyond that you can't see anything the, the frequencies become so weak at that point that they just don't reflect back out 
Well, I, I got to say, looking at and, and going to the third point, because we're talking about the rendezvous with your Arctic mission. We understand all, uh, you know, a team leader dying, uh, the, the, the crash of 2008, everything else happened. Since, and, of course, the challenges of crowdfunding, something mm-hmm. that is so incredible and a very hesitant media not wanting to be the ones holding the bag when er- all life on Earth and everything we thought we knew about life on Earth changes forever. You think they want to be a part of a story like that? Um, well, they do. They do. But you know, when it's hard to raise investment money, especially for documentaries. The most expensive one ever done was March of the Penguins, and it ended up showing on airplanes. Hmm. It didn't even make it in theaters. I remember that. Yeah, that was the most expensive one ever done. This would be about three times that expense. However, because it's live and because we we have satellite link-up connections from the ship, we would allow people to buy pay-per-view and they could actually watch the whole expedition live from their computer. That's never been done before. That would be tremendous. And I think that the, the even bigger thing here is how you put as a descriptor on your website the reward the rendezvous, the challenge, and the reward. I'm just going to read it here. You said, what if the Earth is hollow? What if there is an inner world safely inside our planet and shielded from the ravages of the sun and surface cataclysms? That doesn't that doesn't mean to say that there aren't a whole new category of cataclysms out there, Brooke, or in there, Brooke, but... Anyway, what we're dealing with is probably not going to be a, a big problem. We may discover this opening, however small, and if there is intelligent life there, perhaps they will come out to meet our ship. If they do, the entire world will be there to see it live on our cameras. You can be part of it. Don't pass it up. Intelligent life on the inside. Um, I consider that, and I say, well, why are what's the, are they advanced enough? Is just being on the inside of the Earth somehow an advantage that would that would mean that they are advanced enough to not come out are are they are they even an ancient uh, an ancient more ancient civilization that went to the inside to get away from us on the outside or who the hell knows is it a portal to another dimension i don't know these are all legitimate questions and and we have instrumentation on the ship with experts from universities that are skilled in measuring those very things. That's why Stanford and Washington University and Cambridge, uh, Johns Hopkins, they're all contributing scientists and technology to this expedition so we can measure those, those very things. In answer to your question, one of the things that keeps coming up when our team gets together and talks about this is we cannot ignore any data that's that's a curse of science everywhere i mean we're, we're suffering because of it right now with this whole climate change thing yeah where you have scientists who who routinely alter data or throw out data that doesn't agree with their hypothesis we're not doing that so one of the pieces of data and this could be a whole other program probably that we can't throw out is ufos we have plenty of data that they exist. We have eyewitnesses, we have film, we have radar, we have thermal imagery. And that leads us to three uh, assumptions. And you can make assumptions in science, and then you can create a, an experiment to prove or disprove them. But here are the assumptions. Number one is UFOs are real. 
they're present. Everybody has seen them for thousands of years and recorded it in stone, in paint, in film. The second one is we believe that they're as present as they want to be. And if they wanted to be more present, there isn't anything anybody could do about it. And the third one is we realize they haven't brandished their weapons, which means they're probably not our enemy. They're probably our cohabitant on this planet. And maybe they made mistakes before. So we figure we're going to be a lone ship 500 miles from the nearest consciousness signal. We're going to have an open mind, and we're going to be in the right place on Earth. If there's intelligent life there, maybe they will come out to see us. And if they do, we will get it on film, and everyone will see it. That is that right there is so exciting in a world where very few that's going on in mainstream that is exciting right now. That is this, this is the kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff that I wish that we were doing more of. Um, if you were to uh, try to separate your hope um, and your desires from practicality and pragmatism, uh, what, what do you think would be the the nearest date if you were going to put this any time in the future that this expedition could be launched? Well, it takes about a year to get the logistics done because there are permits and all kinds of things that have to be done to move equipment to first through to Moscow and then up the uh, through uh, St. Petersburg to Murmansk, which you can go by river, train, or airplane, or but the logistics have to be figured out. It takes about a year. And then it takes about a year to raise the money. So we can overlap those things, but and then you, there's only a six-week window. Because before that, it's frozen, and after that, it refreezes. And it refreezes so fast that you have a hard time getting out of there unless it's this ship. There have been lots of ships caught in that ice and destroyed. It freezes really, really fast. And right now, in 2022, the Arctic cap is thicker and larger than it's been since, like, 82 it's enormously Im impossible formidable. impossible we are we are we only have six years left to live because of everything everything just collapsing and melting this is impossible yeah well that's what happens when a mathematician comes up against a, a meteorologist the data shows exactly the opposite the earth has been cooling for about 45 years and we are very very close to tipping over and getting if not a mini ice age, a serious ice age, which could push the farm belt between 100 and 300 miles toward the equator. Jeez. Can you imagine that? That means no wheat in Alberta. That wheat belt would drop all the way to Billings, Montana. Wow. Talk about migrant crisis. Yeah, and that's kind of funny because that's the skinny part of the planet around the equator. Yeah, it's kind of hard to fit eight billion people in that amount of land space. You said that. You said that. Wow. Okay. Well, um, I you let me know. I would well, first of all, uh, at Brooks. Agnew, oh, you have a seat. You got a seat on the ship. No. Oh. So oh, if I so I can go out to uh, to Russia with you. Yeah, we we had tickets to go. We went and uh, we bought all of our tickets, and we had a small team that was going to do the preliminary. Uh, dry run and this was in uh, in spring of 2020 we were supposed to go and of course all that got scuttled we lost 
I don't know how much money we lost. I forgot about it now. But all the train tickets and plane tickets and permits and passports and all that, we, we lost all that money. I, I, I bet you this is what would happen if I go with you, Brooks. I get on the ship. We meet up. We do all this stuff. We finally get out on the water, and, like, Ghidra is going to pop out from under the ice. <laughs> Rodan. Mothra. Yeah, but it, this is a big boat. This is 450 feet long and 75,000 horsepower. This is a major ship. My gosh. I, I can't wait to get the updates on this. I can't wait to have you back. Brooksagnew.blog. Is that the best place people can go to uh, look? Yeah, it is. It is. Everything's coordinated there. My radio program, uh, all my books and everything that I do, uh, everything I publish is coordinated on that website. When do you go live? I'm live Wednesday nights and Sunday nights at 8 p.m. on all media, everything, Rumble, Rockfin, DLive, Twitter, everything. Are you on TalkStream Live? Yes. Okay, because I think I've seen I think I've seen you listed there before. Anyway, I'm going to be listening a lot more often, and the next time you come on, we'll have a lot we'll have uh, a lot more to follow up on, but especially to talk about the UFO phenomenon. Uh, UFOs throughout history, uh, as I said before, when I was I was uh, you know buying you a little time because you were about five minutes behind. I went back into our native blog about Operation High Jump and how UFOs and Antarctica, the poles and theories of inner Earth are inextricably linked together in many places. So I would love to do this with you again. And um, anything you want to leave us with, Brooks, this has been a fantastic time I've spent with you. Well, I, I believe everything we do eventually affects the universe. So I try to do that on purpose. Um, I don't let time slip by because I'm on borrowed time anyway. So we, we're going to be about doing this. Our team is excited about it. We never quit. We work on something on it every single day. And uh, my 13th book is coming out. My trilogy is we're working on getting it into a TV series. So there's a lot of irons in the fire, and they're all going to be red hot all the time. I love it. I love it. Brooks, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I'm looking forward to uh, installment number two, whenever that is. We'll talk off air. Very good, sir. All right. Be well. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Brooks Agnew, brooksagnew.blog. Dot blog. Well, that scratched a few itches. I love. I just love that talk. That is what was so enjoyable. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to go on a really quick intermission. We come back, and I am going to go into, uh, I'm going to follow up a few things. Follow up a few things, including I got Albert to send me send me the link of the man who discovered the firmament under the sea. Okay, this is a testimony outside, a personal testimony of someone outside of what Brooks had uh, witnessed through these particular scans that got him interested in a way uh, far beyond just science fiction writing. So we're going to be doing that. Don't go anywhere. There is so much more to do and what little time we have left. And uh, hope you're here on the other end of this very short break. Don't go. Welcome to Intermission. We'll be right back. Yeah, intermission. 
Quite frankly. 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 Not quite. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. Yeah. Quite frankly, in Roma, Italia. Quite frankly, you going on Frank's show tonight? I really like you. You're very smart. So everybody watch. Quite frankly. With Frank. Quite frankly. How dare you? points of business to do before we get to our super chatters. The first thing is we have a raffle. We have a raffle. Lauren got me all the... Uh, this was between August 22nd. All the names, no duplicates. All the names between August 22nd and uh, what was it? Sunday? For the drumstick and the set list. The official set list. Set the charge set list from our August 18th show there at Garcia's. So, we got all these names here. I'm going to that corner, digging that one out. I'm going to this corner, digging that one out. Now I'm just jumbling them all around together, jumbling all them around together. Blubbity-doo, blubbity-dee. Ah, I got one. Right here. Who wins? Claire Bear, Texas. Claire Bear in Texas. I know Claire. Claire wins. There you go. That'll be easy. I know exactly how to get in touch with her to get her address. Thank you, everybody, for playing. But you want to know something. Claire Bear, I'm going to leave that one here. Thank you, everybody else, for just, you know, interacting with the show and donating to the show. And uh, I like now that we're creating little ways to sweeten the deal. Which brings me to one thing here. With everybody um, joining as sponsors and things. After the show we did on Tuesday night, I went home and I was talking to Lauren because you know what what George was talking about. It's it's really true, and um, I'm always thinking about new ways to make things more value value added for those of you who are monthly sponsors of the show. And you know, on places like 
subscribe star or dare I say Patreon, there are different tiers and different levels where you get different perks based on how much you are subscribing. But then there are other just people just pledge what they can. Uh, there are other places like on quitefrankly.tv where it's just a general pledge at different levels and everybody gets something universal. No matter where you become a sponsor of the show, no matter where, for whatever, no matter how little or how much, there is something universal you get. Number one, there is you get the, uh, the the unlisted link to all the Sunday streams and direct messaging, priority messaging and emailing. Now there's a third thing that everybody is going to get if you become a monthly sponsor. At the uh, beginning of every month or right when everybody is Whoever we have for the, the the sponsors for that month, Lauren is going to grab the emails from QuiteFrankly.tv, from Patreon, and from some Subscribestar. Those emails are going to be put into a monthly patron raffle, and we're going to be giving away. Maybe we'll do a first, second, third place prize, or at least just a first place prize. But now there is going to be a monthly patron giveaway based on email drawings of the emails from those of you who are monthly sponsors. We'll give away t-shirts, give away bags of coffee, other little show relics, books. Um, I don't know. If I, can, if, if I come across uh, pieces of silver and precious metals, we will figure it out. But that is something that we're going to be starting, uh, I believe, in November. So we're just going to get ourselves ready. And, and all throughout the month of September and October, you want to become a sponsor, even for a dollar, that's an extra raffle you will always be entered into every month without even doing anything. And we'll keep doing these raffles, too, because I have a lot of fun with them. And the suspense just kills me. All right. Let's get to these uh, super chats, and then I'm going to go to this video. The video is entitled, Man Discovers Firmament Under the Sea. And apparently he got killed. People theorize he was killed for discovering this. Um, you'll see. It's about two minutes long and it's going to ring bells. It's going to ring bells just as big as the moon. First thing, we're going back to Rumble. I mean, Rockfin chat from Tuesday. I missed these, so I'm going to do them right now. Uh, Paul Rickarts said, get King on again and ask him what I'm missing. Is it the taste or the smell? Maybe the texture. If not for heading too far south of the border because of the previous bad experiences, but south by southwest of it's me, it has it me miffed. What, what do you get? What if you get a bad one? Okay, uh, I guess Paul Rickards wants to ask King what the allure of eating ass is. That's what I'm gathering. I'll, next time he's, a, he's on, I'll, I'll ask him. Twisted Wizard says, good versus evil. The Antichrist's war on humanity. Great show, Frank and company. Cheers. And then thank you, Todd Fife, for a tip. That was on Tuesday. Now, as for tonight. First one up is Dooku Dan. Let's see what Dan's got to say. If the, if the page would just load. I can't wait to get this into Jim Lee's hands because something is just wrong with this computer. It is just not right. It's not right. Like 1995 over here. Oh, Stostube. Stostube says, wonderful guest tonight, Frank, as usual. Great independent media as always. And little contribution for the show, my friend. Stostube, Christos, Sarah, thank you guys. Thank you. 
If we ever drive through Massachusetts, we're sleeping at your house. Dooku Dan says, Frank, please ask Brooks why the elite still go to Antarctica. Why the Nazis went there? Do they go to the inner earth? Dan, do me a favor and email that to me because I'm going to make sure that I have Brooks on the um, on the the schedule for some time in mid to late October, and we will continue this. I w- and please email me that that uh, it's a great question to ask. Let's see. Uh, Captain Castiron says, maybe the Hollow Earth Passage is where the prehistoric fish came from. I think it was rediscovered in the 90s. And then Captain Castiron says, tell us how you really feel about Lindsey Graham. He's a piece of shit. Big one. Big piece of shit. Okay. And over on Rockfin, everybody's doing well over there. Okay, everybody's fine. Now let's get to this. Let's see how this is two minutes long. Somebody put it up on TikTok. It's small as hell, so I'm going to have to zoom this in. Put up. I hope that the... Let's see. Wait, wait. Get the zoom out of here. There you go. Killed for discovering the firmament. Now... Just remember what we just watched. Let's see. The waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Right. One of the strangest places on the ocean's floor was only just discovered in the 1990s. Okay, one of the strangest places on the ocean floor was only just discovered in the 1990s. This is obviously... I mean, clips like this are always preserved by somebody taking a video of... off of an old television... I don't know where the originals are, but I'm going to try to get you a a translation for those of you in podcast land. And my degree is one of a handful of people to ever see it in person. And this person is one of the handful of people to ever see it in person. Without a doubt, one of the most amazing things that I have ever seen in the bottom of the ocean. It was while filming for Blue Planet. It was in the Gulf of Mexico. I noticed there's something out in the distance. Couldn't tell him. Okay, so it's Gulf of Mexico. That's what I told Brooks. He noticed something was out in the distance. He's underwater in this submersible. He's feel he's filming for a blue planet, this guy is. Exactly what? But it looked like a dark band. And as we approached it, the dark band became a donut. I saw this donut that was black in the center. What the heck is that? And so as we get closer and closer to it, I noticed that the black band had what appeared to be kind of steam over it. And then I looked, and there was water lapping against the shoreline. This band was a ring of muscles. And inside the ring of muscles was a lake. And it's like, wait a minute. So if, if, if you're trying to figure out what he just said, some of you might have heard it nice. He came upon this dark band, this dark, like almost like a donut hole in the Gulf of Mexico. And he's wondering what the hell this thing is. So he gets down a little bit farther and he sees like this ring of muscles. I guess like, you know, muscles that you would, you know, you would prepare for dinner or something like that. But a ring of muscles and in the middle of it, you see water um, lapping against it almost as if it was a shoreline that there was a that, that it looked he was like looking into a lake 
And that's why he says, wait a second, I'm already underwater. What is this? I'm looking at another body of water underwater. Is it, this is the first thing I thought of when Brooks is talking about what they saw through these scans. We went out over the water in this lake and tried to descend in it and bounced off. It was so super saline and dense that the submarine couldn't go down in it. We literally bounced off. And as we bounced off, we sent ripples heading back to the shoreline. It was insane. So there you go. They, they tried to descend into the other lake, but it was so salient, buoyant, it just bounced them off bounced them off and created ripples like he, like he had come in contact with a waterbed okay so never seen anything like it. coincidentally a few days after he, this um aired on the television that he had made this discovery when him and his friend were flying the helicopter it exploded and he died it was this delta that sparked mike degree's interest in underwater filmmaking so he died a few days after this. Well, ah, I'm just saying. I keep all these things in mind. Uh, that sounds like a guy who's telling the truth. And then you have some, and I saw that years ago. And I just said, all right, I'm going to store this one. Then I, took, I talked to Brooks Agnew tonight. And who knows what the truth is of, of the matter. But there is a matter. Nah, who knows? All right. Okay. 840. 840. I think we have some uh I think we have some time for some calls. I had some other things I wanted to do. Um if I wanted to if I could get around to it, but like the updates of war in Ukraine, I do have it in the title tonight, a war report. There's something very weird that's going to be that that's going on and they're really ramping things up in a big way. As far as things getting very serious out there between Russia and Ukraine, Russia and NATO. That's happening. Big time. Let's take a call first. Uh Jerry Coogan's the first one up. Jerry, how you feeling tonight? Hey, Frank. Hey. Uh, great show. Hold on, I've got to switch off the uh Yep, I've got to switch off the other one. I've just like. Hey, uh, great show. Oh shit! Hold, hold on, hold on. I've, the, uh, I've fucked up as usual. That's better, right? It's just you and me now. Yes. Yeah. Um, what a great show! I love the opening when you were on fire and you've got all that uh, righteous rage. And uh, you're calling it all out, and it's quite right. I love that. I love that because that's me, and it's so many other people who listen to this show. This is where we are. Yeah. And, and we get all the other stuff, flat earth, uh, hollow earth, uh, <laughs> what's on the moon, and all the rest of it. And I'm sitting there in the jacuzzi in Theta, T or Theta, as you say in America, Theta TV, um, in the chat room and we're discussing various things uh, while listening to the, the stream and I cannot help but think that so many of the things that are being thrown at us such as 
they didn't go to the moon. Paul is dead. Uh, flat Earth, Hollow Earth, all that. Identity politics, that's the big one. Identity politics and, and some of the things that were in the grab bag at the start of the show, these outrageous, idiotic insults to your intelligence. What's all that about? That's to distract people. That's to make people say, this is ridiculous, I'm going to go and, and get angry about this. Meanwhile, the World Economic Forum is trying to press on with its evil agenda. And they threw out these stink bombs or, or smoke flares or whatever for everybody to get excited about. And do we concentrate on what we actually have to do? I think a lot of people get, uh, their, their energy gets diverted into the other things, the distractions. Now look, it's September. September, October, November. In fact, it's halfway through September. So there is less than two months until the midterm elections. And the midterm elections are what are going to change the course of world history. If we don't get proper representation in Congress, I say we, I mean the world, because we look to America to be the shining light in the hill. If we don't get a proper counterattack to the Marxist totalitarian plan to destroy America, if that doesn't happen in November, all other bets are off. You can forget about Antarctica, you can forget about anything else, because it's all over. So what I want to emphasize tonight is that if you are an American citizen, which I wish I was, I'm not, but if you're an American citizen, you have the power to investigate which sheriff you're going to vote for, which everybody, you do that. You have the power to put yourself down as an election observer, whatever the terms are, but to get in there and make sure that the fraud, the, the, the cheat doesn't happen, you have the power to get to know your local sheriff. You have the power to go and listen to Jovan Hutton Pulitzer and get his advice on how to stop the cheat. Because <laughs> don't kid yourself. They are planning a new strategy, not the one that they used in 2016, which failed, or the one that they used in 2018, which is partial success and the one where they completely jumped the shark in 2020. It's all going to come down, but it won't come, it won't all come down if the great American public, and there are tens of millions of great Americans who believe in what America is supposed to be, it won't, it won't, uh, if, if, if all those great Americans are too busy looking into the details of whether or not Paul McCartney has got different, uh, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah. it's just you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, you're, you're saying, you're saying that there's not going to be a, the, the luxury, the luxury of having uh, the time to talk about things that we wish we knew we can, in what direction we can bound into to do some really 
good exploring, to get back to good old human exploration and and being able to just go out there and, and, and satisfy our curiosity and learn more about what we're doing. We have to, we have to fight our way out of this paper bag right now because uh, the bag's on fire. And it's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, and time is of the essence. You, you, you're hitting well, your, your message is not lost, Jerry, well, that's for sure. Yeah, here we are at Norman Day Hits, D-Day Hits, June the 6th, over the top we go. And there are people there that are jumping out of landing craft that a few years earlier had been at universities and had been studying this, that, the other thing and, and had plans for what they were going to do. No, now they've got a tin helmet on and they're piling out of a landing craft on the Normandy beaches holding a, a rifle and charging all the way to Berlin or Auschwitz or wherever, wherever it was the liber liberated people up there in the, in the air, the US Air Force, the RAF and so on, Spitfires, Mustangs, whatever, strafing Germans. And then they came home and they got demobbed and they got on with their lives and they wouldn't even talk about it. That's where we are now. That's where we are now. After the war is over and we've won and it might take 10 years this is not going to be over in this year or in 2024 it's not going to be over this is a long haul well i have some things to add to that and i understand after it's over we'll, we'll have a lot more time to like i said scratch those itches but um you know wrap up what you were saying there jerry because you, you got me an opening there to to finish up the show in a way that i had originally intended so go right ahead well, I love the things that you do when you we go out there. I love that stuff, as you know. I love the esoteric stuff. I love the mystical stuff. I love the the deep philosophical stuff. Wonderful. But we will have no opportunity to explore these things together over a free internet and so on and so forth if these people achieve their aims, which is to destroy our freedom. And coming up to November in America, that is crucial. That will that will that will affect the course of the new king of the United Kingdom, Charles of Earth. Yeah. All these things will be affected. These things are big and they will all be and, and there are only two people in the world right now that are leading the fight against this thing that I have some trust in. One of them is obviously Trump and the other one is <laughs> Vlad. Putin. And I would recommend people go to a Twitter channel. I don't go on tw Twitter very often, but there is a Twitter page or whatever you call it, account called Putin Direct. And it's fascinating to hear the words of Putin, or not so much to hear him. You can hear them, but you've got the English subtitles. It's fascinating to look at his speeches. They're usually two minute, two oh. minute uh, clips from his speeches. And he puts these things out, and I've gone through that entire account. It only started about five months ago. Well, Jerry, let me get around to this. I have to, because I, 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 you, you, you yeah. got me in a good position. I'm going to ride this in all great points. And thank you again for the call. Let me move on just for just a little bit. I got I to gotta get this in because I also have to get this, this uh, computer offloaded into Jim Lee's hands. Yes, all those, those um, I would follow the Saker. I would follow the Saker blog. Closely, especially when it comes to speeches that come out of Russia, not because uh, you know we're all sycophants or or uh, you know 
someone, people who are obsessed with the, you know, Russia, you know, making themselves the greatest nation on earth. It's just that there are things going on right now, and we're being told that the reality is uh, much different than it actually is. And, um, and you know, the enemies at home are the enemies that are being faced in other countries. And it's incredible to see what is talked about in those speeches how they are covered or ignored altogether. And after a wonderful speech, one that is full of history and one that calls out, it's almost like they're almost like little, they're like Vigano uh, essays calling out what is really going on in the world, how the West is killing itself for no reason, and that they're preparing, you know, to make last ditch efforts to maintain their hegemony. And their power and influence over things, but that time is just gone. The power is gone. They have nothing left. They've bankrupted themselves, especially morally. There's no trust in the media. Um, it's interesting because usually after they do something like, and this is a man that's supposed to be dying, Vladimir Putin, we start getting complete changes in in one thing or another. Now, uh, over the weekend, over the weekend, we got this information. I mean, here at home, we've been getting things like Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas on Sunday. He used September 11th, another one, to declare that the threat landscape has evolved in the last 21 years since 9-11. And the new threat to the U.S. is not foreign terrorists, not Russia, not climate change. But the Americans radicalized by an ideology of hate anti-government sentiment and false narratives propagated on online platforms. Now that, now that is the new biggest threat coming from, coming from uh, DHS. Every week, the biggest threat changes from uh, the white males, Christian nationalism, climate change, uh, you name it. And now it's Americans radicalized by an ideology of anti-government sentiment, which is actually Americanism. That's actually Americanism. Uh, So that starts coming out. Then we get this war in Ukraine. That's been another case study in what the media's real role in the world really is. Check out this this stirring set of headlines. Now, this is all... uh, Here's the first one. Insider from yesterday. Or from the uh, late... It's like on the 13th. Former U.S. general says he's even more concerned about Putin using nukes as Ukraine makes astonishing progress in its counteroffensive. Now, this is all based on the breathless headlines over the weekend that Russia had suffered a massive blow at the hands of NATO's Nazi proxies in, uh, in Ukraine. Now, the opposing reports I have seen, it can pretty much be boiled down to that Whereas this was a major seeding of land, it's just that. It was mostly empty land that was loosely held together by a small contingent of Russian troops. And and Putin, if you've been reading his speeches, to try to see at least what is being said directly, un, uninterpreted for a CNN audience, not to say that you love one side and you whatever, uh, it, it's just that if you want to be able to hear what's coming directly instead of having it go through a, a CNN, MSNBC filter, he's been saying it from the beginning. We, 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 haven't even started the, we haven't even started the fight. 
like a John Paul Jones kind of a thing here. We haven't, we have not unleashed, and you can tell by the way that most of you know the the, the slow going to try to minimize. They've been obviously trying to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, it, they've been, it's been obvious that they've been trying to hold uh, hold back from destroying critical infrastructure because they want life to resume as quickly as possible once this is all over. It's just obvious. I don't have a dog in the fight. It's just obvious that's what's been going on. But um, so this land was, they they lost a lot of land to the NATO forces, but the media needs a win out there. So either way, I was told, I was told by a friend, just ignore, reminded, just ignore all the Western shit about the war. It's about to shift. And I even got a little bit of an Astro update there too, so that this may move into a more serious phase before the eclipse, October 25th to November 8th. Which is interesting because obviously November November eighth is our midterms. Now what this means, I don't know, but the gloves may be coming off soon. That may be. Here's another one. Uh, headlines from MSN. Don't be fooled. Putin still has some nasty tricks up his sleeve. Ukraine recaptured the city of Izium on Saturday, giving hope that the tide might finally be turning decisively against the Russian invaders. Not only are Russian forces in retreat, Vladimir Putin is facing increased criticism at home. There is uh, even evidence of the Kremlin engaging in damage control to manage the domestic narrative. Remember, this is a guy who's supposed to have been dead from all types of cancer uh, months ago. Now, tricks up their sleeve. What does this what does this say to me knowing what kind of media we live with? In my opinion, and who am I? But in my opinion, I guess the trick may be an escalation that has been uh, very patiently avoided. Very patiently avoided since February with NATO and the US in particular. NATO and the US in particular pumping money and weapons and special forces into the regions and pretending like they aren't active participants. Okay, Russia has had more than enough reason to really take out the weighted gloves. If you're thinking objectively, you think about how this is set up and what you have standing behind with a, with a hand up the ass of, uh, of the puppet Ukraine in the West. They, they've, had, they've shown some really good patience in holding off war, but this is something else. This I saw get passed around a little bit over the last 48 hours. This one was originally on Yahoo News, and now the link is dead. So I found a, uh, a couple of excerpts that was uh, posted on GLP. Medvedev announced the apocalypse. Did he? That's the question. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, has called the recommendations of the Kiev Security Compact for the Strategic Partnership of Ukraine and the the, uh, the guarantor states a prologue to World War III. Here's a quote from Medvedev. The Kiev Kamarilla has drafted security guarantees which are prologue to a third world war. Of course, no one will give any guarantees to the Ukrainian Nazis. After all, this is almost the same as applying Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, the Washington Treaty, to Ukraine. For NATO, it's the same shit, only from a side view. That's why it's scary. 
So the details, Medvedev believes that NATO is waging a hybrid war with Russia by supplying weapons to Ukraine. According to him, if Ukraine continues to be pumped full of weapons, then, quote, sooner or later, the military campaign will go into another level with unpredictable actions by opposing sides. Medvedev is afraid that then, quote, everything will catch fire and the West, which is weakening Russia, uh, which is weakening Russia by proxy, will not be able to sit it out. You know, they're just making this drag on and, you know, it's a, listen, any military that stays in a place like that and continues active, if you're dropping bombs, you're, you're draining somebody economically, every bomb. Well, what's the return on, what's the return on investment? You put $60,000 into one bomb or another, it blows up, and then you just got to spend $60,000 again. So it is a drain. Quote, everything will catch fire around them as well. Their people will be devastated. Their earth will literally burn. Concrete will melt. So people started wondering, what the hell is this all about? What the hell is this all about? Well, they've been keeping us around here. And always remember the media's function now that as, as I have to leave. And it's sad that this is the stuff that we're constantly talking about instead of pursuing curiosity, thinking about what the, the, the hidden wonders of the world really are, what we're sitting on top of, miles beneath the surface even, miles above, who knows. And always just remember the media's function in this. It's not to report. It's not it's not to report anything it's to create it's to redefine and it's to justify events they warn about putin's desperate nuclear gambits for the same reason that they lie about joe biden and the democrats sudden surge in approval and momentum which came from nowhere and that reason is ops are in place Biden approval rises sharply ahead of midterms he's up to 45% now how I don't know. I don't know. It's not It's not real. So ops are in place. And this, has, this kind of projection is part of it. You know, Joe Biden has no momentum. And the globalists are ones, the, the ones fighting with their hands tied behind their backs in Ukraine. They have no predicate to announce their official presence out there, so they're just sending tens of thousands of Ukrainians into the meat grinder as cannon fodder until they can figure out how to get Russia to make a mistake or at least get them to commit to action that could be framed as a mistake. So Jerry's right. Everybody's right. When you say, where are we going next? And what's on the menu for the future? They don't want us having fun, that's for sure. But um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for everything tonight. I hope you did have fun. I did, despite everything. And tomorrow is another day. It's Friday. We're going to have Raw Egg Nationalist on for a talk about his new book. Came in highly recommended by Noor Bin Laden. It should be a fun segment, and then we'll do some other fun stuff afterwards. Matt might even be back. He might be feeling uh, better. He's had another week to recover. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you guys and gals, one and all, and thanks again to Brooks Agnew for coming on and really, really taking us to another place, just what the doctor ordered. See you later. I'll catch you on the flip side.
White Frankly's Film Before Live studio audience, and now our super chatters, starting with Stostube, Dooku Dan, Captain Cast Iron, and that's it. That's it over there. Thank you to everybody on Rumble, everybody on Rockfin, and on Twitch. DLive, YouTube, Theta. Oh, you guys and gals, what am I going to do? What am I going to do until tomorrow? I'll just be thinking of you, that's all. All right. Good night. See you soon. about it though, Tom. Sort of weight loss. AIDS? Nobody's got AIDS. I don't want to hear that word here again. <laughs>